Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, January 22nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the reaction of the French President Emmanuel Macron on the order uh, by the Burkina Faso government that the envoy and military personnel from Paris leave the West African state immediately. The government of Malawi has announced that it is that it has no more cholera vaccines amid an outbreak in this southern African state. United Nations uh, Secretary General uh, is visiting uh, Cape Verde to discuss issues involving the impact of climate change, and protests by environmentalists has taken place at the World Economic Forum gathering in Davos, Switzerland. In the second hour, we listen to the closing address by African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa at the Provincial Elective Conference held this weekend in the Free State. Finally, we pay tribute to the lifetimes and contributions of Amokar Cabral on the 50th anniversary of his assassination in 1973. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, with the artist Alpha Blondie from the album entitled Jerusalem. Let's listen in. Salam alaikum. 
mi moja Na boyo, na kenyo, na rara mi wao Na boyo, na kenyo, na sachi mi wani Na boyo, na kenyo, na rara mi wao Na boyo, na kenyo, na sachi mi wani
Welcome back. And uh, that was the music of Alpha Blondie uh, from the West African state of Cote d'Ivoire from the album uh, entitled Jerusalem. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation in regard to uh, the French presence in the West African state of Burkina Faso. French President Emmanuel Macron uh, said earlier today he was awaiting, quote, clarifications, unquote, for Burkina Faso's leader, uh, following a report saying authorities in the West Africa ordered hundreds of French troops to leave the country within a month. Macron said during a news conference in Paris that the message from Burkina Faso were, quote, confusing, unquote, with uh, leader Ibrahim Traore away from the capital of Ouagadougou. Burkina Faso's national broadcaster, RTB, reported yesterday that the military government had decided on Wednesday to end the French military presence in the country. RTB cited the official agent de information du Burkina as the source of the announcement. I think we must be very careful, Macron said about the report mentioning Russia's possible interference and the need to make sure 
that there was no, quote, manipulation, unquote, of information. Anti-French sentiment has grown in Burkina Faso, a former French colony since Traore seized power in September. Traore has been overtly open uh, to working with other countries, notably the Russian Federation. In the southern African state of Malawi, the worst cholera epidemic in decades has sparked massive demand for vaccines, but stocks are reportedly running low. According to local media, citing the spokesperson for the Malawi's health ministry, Adrian Shikombe, the country has no more cholera vaccines. Malawi secured a tranche of 2.9 million doses from the Gavi-supported global oral cholera vaccine stockpile in November. The country's 29 health districts reported cholera cases since the confirmation of the first case in March of last year. As of January the 20th, Malawi health authorities reported a total of 631 new cases of cholera and 17 new deaths. The cumulative confirmed cases and deaths reported since the onset of the outbreak stood at 28,132 and 916 deaths. In its daily update, the health ministry urged all Malawians to adhere to, adhere to preventive and containment measures. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres arrived in Cape Verde for the Ocean Race Summit on Sunday. He also plans to observe some of the solutions being considered to help protect the 10 Island Archipelago off the coast of Africa. Speaking to journalists, Guterres said Cape Verde is on the front lines of the existential crisis generated by climate disruptions as it has faced a severe drought as well as sea level rises and loss of biodiversity and ecosystems which present an existential threat to this and many other archipelagos. He added that he was profoundly frustrated by the fact that world leaders are not taking the necessary action and making the investments needed to face this life and death emergency. And finally, um, in uh, the city of of Davos in Switzerland, uh, Vanessa Nakati of Uganda, together with prominent young activists, including Greta Thunberg from Sweden, Helena Ulinga of Ecuador, and Luisa Numbao of Germany, participated on Thursday in a roundtable with the International Energy Agency Executive Director Faith Beral at the World Economic Forum's annual gathering in Switzerland. Nakati, who at one point choked up, said, quote, leaders are playing games, unquote, with people's futures. People in part of the world, people in parts of the world most affected by climate change are, quote, clinging to their lives and just trying to make it for another day, to make it for another week, to make it for another hour, another minute, unquote, she said, uh, Gualenga uh, said the world is taking a really dangerous path. Greta Thunberg uh, blamed blamed, uh, corporate bigwigs meeting in Davos for fueling the destruction of the planet by investing in fossil fuels and prioritizing short-term profits over people affected by the climate crisis. The activists brought a cease and desist letter calling on the heads of the fossil fuel companies to stop all new oil and natural gas projects signed by nearly 900,000 people. 
scientists say no new fossil fuel projects can be built if the world is to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, in line with the climate goals set in Paris in uh, 2015. Uh, with that, that we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has since then published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
the voice of uh, Barbara Mason. Change me if you can. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, January 22nd, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, the African National Congress concluded the provincial uh, free state elective conference uh, today um, and emerged uh, with a new leadership uh, of uh, the free state um, ANC leadership, uh, provincial leadership. We want to listen to the uh, concluding address uh, by President Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of the Republic of South Africa and also president of the ruling African National Congress. He gave the concluding address uh, earlier uh, today in South Africa. Let's listen in. Amanda. Viva ANC Viva. Viva. Viva Kosatu Viva. Viva. Viva SACP Viva. Viva. Malibongwe. Ika Maramakoska. Raw Young Lions Raw. Forward with the Veterans League Forward. Amanda. Mata. Matimba. Manda. Manda. La la mona freestart. Comrade Provincial Chairperson, Comrade Mkoli Sidukwana, the newly elected Chairperson of the Free State. Comrade Keso Makume, the newly elected Deputy Chairperson of the Free State. Comrade Dihelele Mochwaneng, the newly elected Secretary of the Province of the Free State. Comrade Dibulelo Masati. the newly elected Deputy Provincial Secretary of the ANC in the Free State, Comrade Matabo Lieto, the newly elected Treasurer General, Earth Treasurer, not Treasurer General, maybe one day, <laughs> the Treasurer of the ANC in the Free State, members of the National Executive Committee, leaders of the Alliance here present from COSATU, the SACP, leaders of the ANC Women's League, the ANC Youth League, the ANC Veterans League, delegates to this conference, 
a historic conference of the ANC here in the Free State. And comrades and friends, comrades, Kiridumedisa Kaufela, Libitong La African National Congress, Ikileli Libitong La National Executive Committee, Ya ANC. Kibata Hole Leboa, Horele Kone Hutsara Conference, Haramatada. When at one stage it seemed like this conference will not happen and it will collapse or be collapsed, you refused to have this conference collapse. I want to thank you for your commitment, for your resoluteness, and for your determination that this conference must happen. We had hoped that this conference would take place before the national conference, but it was not to be. But we are really pleased that you've been able to hold what I would call a watershed conference. Conference HNA Retile Huitaraka 2004. You've held a conference that has been so successful. Barata Kapabarati. Conference Vienna is successful. Ikile Hunalibao Basarati. Hunalibao Banebabata or Conference Vienna is Kadula. Impa Lienzen Twente Aholu. Or a conference in Ibeti. I said, Nafela, Lady Tosa, NEC, Sele Leboha. Give out to Bafri Stata. Baneva EMS conference in And they wanted this conference to succeed. Just like Comrade Dukwana said, Me Madumise. Une Alla Katsahori Abeti in conferencing Yena. She is an ANC veteran. She's already advanced in her age, although she's still very youthful. She and many citizens of the Free State were looking forward to the success of this conference. You have given her and many others a wonderful New Year present. Thank you very much for having done so. It has been a long and arduous road to come to this point of holding this conference. And I want to congratulate the leadership that you have elected and the leadership that you are also going to elect as additional members to the PEC. And I'm sure that you are going to elect leaders who are going to take the renewal project forward. Because this conference is about renewal. And as I said when I addressed the January 8th rally, I said, 
renewal this time round is irreversible, is irrevocable, and renewal is the only way forward. That is exactly what your conference is about. What conference is renewal It's a conference of renewal because, comrades, you have now built a very good foundation to revive the ANC, to wake the ANC up in the Free State. There was a time when the branches of the ANC, you yourselves as members said they did not exist. But you did a most amazing and wonderful thing towards the national conference, the 55th conference. Many, if not all your branches, did meet. You held your meetings. And that, to me, showed the beginning signs of the revival and the renewal of the African National Congress. Kelo na batso sang ANC. ANC na yarona ya choha juale mona freestart. Conference na ibonza hante hore kaneti ANC. So, comrades, I commend your spirit and your dedication. And number three of your regions must still hold their conferences. And I have no doubt that beyond this provincial conference, and on the back of the national conference, those regions will be able to hold very successful conferences. You will be able to rebuild the branches of the ANC and make them alive. And this conference, comrades, is about the people of the Free State. It's not about you. The people of the Free State are listening, are watching, and earlier I was looking at all of you as your, the conference was going on. If not all of you are clearly determined and your determination is demonstrated by the leadership you have elected. I have no doubt that the confidence that you have invested in them will be confidence that is well placed that will be able to take the ANC renewal project forward. So I do thank you, and I think your conference is a watershed moment. It's a milestone moment. It differs from the conferences that we have held recently in this province. The 55th National Conference, comrades, 
reaffirmed the primary role and intent about the ANC main reason for existence, which is to better the life of our people. And Lilona, as you are meeting here as a conference, you need to be affirming that this is precisely why the ANC exists here in the Free State. It exists for no other reason but to improve the lives of our people. This is the objective that calls on all of us to accelerate and to deepen the transformation of the lives of our people here in the Free State. Our people here are looking forward to this leadership that you are going to be electing as a leadership that will be a change agent, that will change things. I want the free state being the center of the country naturally has to play a key role because you are the center on which we should say everything should revolve. Now is the time for the free state to play its given role. Where the ANC was founded is where the ANC must show real life. It must show where it exists for the betterment of the people of our country. This is your task as the ANC here in the free state. The NEC declared 2023 as the year of decisive action to advance our people's interests and to renew our movement. Conference directed all of us to take decisive action to renew and to rebuild our movement. A strong, vibrant and united movement is crucial for us to see success of the National Democratic Revolution. And in the January 8th statement, we were clear about what our tasks are, that the structures of the movement must be rebuilt, and now beyond this conference, that is precisely what each one of us must now go back to our branches and to go and rebuild the ANC. And I will say, yes, there was contestation for the leadership of the ANC here. Contestation for the top five, but that contestation in the end has culminated with this leader. All of us must now rally behind this leadership we came to this conference with divided candidates. This is now the leadership. Everybody must unite behind this leadership. As I was listening to the TV broadcast, I heard others who walked out of this conference and they started voicing their dissatisfaction and they voiced that dissatisfaction about a few issues that the delegates 
They said no, there there were supposed to be 650 delegates. In the end, there were additional seven delegates. And for that reason, they are going to court. Ukai a court for seven delegates now. Kebusanya bojo ambora bolu. You know, comrades, in 1994, we held the first democratic elections in our country. And we won all the provinces, except for KZS. Delegation here KZN, Ebeita, go Shell House. Babet Ali Bari, we think we won the election, but in the end we have been robbed. Comrade Madiba are comrades. Our task is to change the lives of our people. Let us accept the outcome of this election. And all of us unite so that we can move forward. And the leadership of KZN said, that is exactly what we are going to do. We are going to accept the outcome of the elections and so that the country can move forward. Now, I want to say to the comrades who may be dissatisfied, comrades, let the free state once and for all let us accept the outcome of this conference and so that we can move ahead. Because if we continue, if we continue to have squabbles amongst us, we weaken the ANC. The people of the Free State will walk away from us. This is the time when we must now be united, and it must be principled unity. We must tell ourselves we are uniting because we want to improve the lives of our people. It must not be about us. It must be about the people of the free state. Bana barring about the candidates Elections lead to some succeeding, some not succeeding. And we have always said, after a leadership is elected, the tradition in the ANC has always been we all rally behind the elected leaders. Whether we like them or not, we rally behind them because what is important is the ANC and not ourselves as individuals. That is what I am calling for. So, because we have a bigger task here in the Free State to reposition the ANC so that the ANC, after all these years, Re 
hore ibe mani bwemombo kodimu dikelelo ntsabatho and we can only do that if we unite and remain united as the African National Congress in the free state and nationally of course beyond this conference so my call to all those who are delegates to this conference is that let us accept this outcome and let us also accept the outcome that is now going to happen as you elect your other leaders who are going to work with the top five leaders. Leadership at all levels must be people who demonstrate that they are also prepared to unite the ANC. So to these leaders and those who are going to be additional members, I say your task must be to unite everyone. Comrade Dukwana, let's go to the Khetiloji you must take it as a task to unite the ANC to even reach out to those who were not working with you to this end unite them and bring the ANC together now I have taken that as my main task to unite the African National Congress I want you as well to take up as your task to unite the ANC and to bring the members of the ANC together because when we do that, then we are able to bring our people together. The ANC is then able to unite all the people of South Africa because that is our task. Comrade, in the January 8th statement, we said we as the ANC must make it our task to attract progressive people of all classes, of all races, of all faiths, and all culture in the ANC, so that the non-racial character of the ANC must be visible in our structures, in our leadership, and in our public representatives and employees as well. This is something that we need to take up seriously as the African National Congress. And I throw it at you as you are going to elect. Gary, let us remember that we are a non-racial organization. And within our ranks, we must also have the people of our country must feel that they are also represented in the African National Congress. And we must therefore remain also committed to the other important aspect of our character, which is a non-sexist organization, and we must be able to remain true. Today we've got three men and two women in the leadership of the top five. That is a great progress, but we also want to see the entire additional members that you will elect representing the non-sexist character 
of the African National Congress. That is important. The important thing, comrades, is that as we do all this, we must be able to demonstrate our value proposition to the people of South Africa. The National Chairperson spoke about our value proposition. What is it? What is it that we have to offer? We must demonstrate to the people of South Africa that we have our principles to offer. We have what we stand for to offer. And if they look at us, they must see a united ANC. They must see an ANC that is representative of them in terms of representation. But they must also see an ANC that adheres to the best principles, the best ethics. They must be able to be attracted to the African National Congress. Now that we are reviving the ANC in this province, we must also be able to be an ANC that will embark on concrete programs, programs that are going to demonstrate to our people who are we care about them. We must be able, our branches must be so alive that they take up the struggles of our people. They must demonstrate through our various representatives, our branch members, our branch leaders, and yes, our local government representatives, that we do take up the struggles of our people and we take up concrete programs. And this is where every branch must have a program. Every branch must be able to take up programs. It must have structures, must have committees that take up various programs, be it gender-based violence, be it policing forums, be it school-related programs where we work with school governing bodies, be it people and also service delivery. And those are the types of programs, comrades, which we are able to take up as branches. It must have concrete programs. Our members, our leaders at branch level, must be continuously engaged with the lives of our people. Precisely what Comrade Dukwana was saying. For yes, there is a councillor on Abu Gahena who is always there, taking, the issue, taking up the issues that affect our people. This is what an ANC branch is supposed to do. So as we rebuild the ANC, this is precisely what we must now do. And being able to take up campaigns and concrete programs then we don't have idle hands. That is when we are able to be busy all the time to serve our people. And as I said, the ANC is about serving our people. 
the ANC is about caring for the people of our country. Now, if there ever was a time for us to demonstrate that, this is the time when we should do so, when we renew the African National Congress here in the Free State. We have had a lot of neglect, neglect of various tasks that we were supposed to take up. As local government, our local government structures here in the Free State, almost all of them have not had audit outcomes that the Auditor General has been able to speak very positively about. Yes, there are pockets where our local government structures are being rebuilt, but we want to see a wholesome process here in the Free State where we begin to give the services that are required to our people, where our local government structures, our local government focuses on serving the people of our country, of our towns, and where service delivery becomes something that we focus our attention on. Because our people cannot continue living in squalor. They cannot continue living with sewage water just flowing in their roads. They cannot continue living with the issues of service delivery as they have been going on. Now, currently, we have energy challenges. And the causes of our energy challenges are well known to many of us. ESCOM's historically inadequate maintenance and delayed investment in building new power stations is the main cause of why we are where we are. We're having load shedding, which understandably is making the people of South Africa angry, making the people of South Africa frustrated, and is negatively impacting on the livelihoods of our people, on the health of our people, on the food production in our country, and negative impact on the economy. And our people are losing their businesses. Many people are reporting where their businesses are failing because of load shedding. Now, the problems that have given rise to where we are started way back, 1998, when we were told by ESCOM that we now need to add capacity to the grid and that was neglected and in the course of time maintenance was stopped on our power stations and the power stations were driven hard so hard that it's almost like your vehicle if you have a vehicle and you don't send it to service and you don't maintain it, it will break at some point. And this is exactly where we are. As I have said even in addresses 
to the nation, we are short of some 6,000 megawatts. Our grid capacity is short of 6,000 megawatts. And we've been working very hard. We've put in place an action plan which I announced last year in July. And the process of adding more capacity with a variety of measures, be it renewable energy and even emergency energy, has been underway. And I said as early as 2019 that we need to embark on emergency power. And that was initiated and the process got started and then it got interrupted by court challenges uh, because it was felt that it was flawed and there were a number of challenges to that. That is now trapped in legal processes. But notwithstanding that, we have now been making a great deal of progress in unlocking the various regulations, the regu various processes that we have put in place so that we can remove all those logjams so that power can be brought onto the grid. And unfortunately, building a power station, adding more capacity takes time. We've been busy with two mega power stations, Midupi and Kusile, and we started building them in a great deal of hurry after we had lost time from 1998. And when we really finally woke up to the reality that the increased population and the growing economy in our country is going to require more energy, we'd really run out of time, we'd really run out of even your engineers who were supposed to manage everything internally. And it became a great deal of hurry, and in the end, we've had to pay almost double for each of the two mega power stations that we've built. And now there were design flaws, and that is why a power station like Kusile 1, 2, and 3 has run into difficulties because of design flaws. So it's been a combination of a number of issues that have brought us where we are. But what we are doing is to address the problem, to reduce the load shedding. We reached a point where we got to level six. Stage six of load shedding is what has made our people very angry. It has made our people very frustrated. And I understand that. And I do take that in and say, yes, it should never have reached the point where it reached. But we are now working it down to reduce those stages of load shedding with the various interventions that we are putting in place. The interventions that I announced in July are interventions that are now being worked on. They are taking effect. We are now going to be ensuring that there is even diesel sufficient enough to power our two diesel power stations in Kherikwa and Ankelek, where we can get more 
more power, more megawatts to be brought onto the system, whilst those power stations that have been taken out for maintenance and repairs are brought back one by one so that we can then be able to have enough power. We are also now purchasing power from countries, nearby countries that have more energy, more megawatts. We are bringing that in. We are also going to companies that have installed more capacity and bringing that in. Now, we are cutting the red tape. There has been a lot of red tape in the system. And we are also bringing in experts, engineers that had either left ESCOM uh, that are scattered all over. We've made a call that they should come back, they should come into ESCOM and give us the assistance so that we can improve our power generation system. And we are going ahead, of course, with restructuring ESCOM itself so that we reposition it so that it can serve the times that we live in like other uh, uh, electricity companies in other countries. Now, of course, as we are all frustrated, we now receive a further double blow from NERSA, which says they want to increase the tariff by 18%, which adds to the frustration that our people are having right now. And we have listened to our people I have been spending a lot of time meeting with various role players, be it business, be it trade unions, religious leaders, traditional leaders, yes, indeed, as well as community-based organizations. Now, all of them have come forward with really good suggestions. And I see today in some newspapers, they say all these consultations have amounted to nothing. But they have amounted to a lot because the various role players that we've been talking to have come up with a lot of suggestions. And some of the suggestions are suggestions that we want to work on. For instance, on rooftop solar panels, the social groups have said, President, let's have solar panels all over the country. Let us install those. We did talk about that earlier and Treasury has been finalizing precisely how we can have solar panels installed and how our people can be supported to have those type of solar panels. We've been talking to our people also about the tariff and we are looking at this issue of the tariff. I have personally said to ESCOM, ESCOM, it will be an injury to our people if we implement this 18% now, when we are going through load shedding. Put it in suspense for a while. And so the ESCOM board is going to discuss that because the tariff was decided on by an independent agency, which is NERSA, at the request, yes, of ESCOM, because ESCOM needs the finance to be able to continue generating the power that we all need. But I have said and made it 
proposal to the ESCOM board that let us put this in suspense because it will not be fair to impose a tariff on our people whilst there is the load shedding that we are going through. So ESCOM is going to give consideration to that. And comrades, this is because we recognize and see the hardships that our people are going through. We are alive to those hardships and we are doing everything we can to resolve this. And there will be a number of other initiatives that we will embark upon that we will be able to talk about in time to come. Now, there's various role players that, also, that we consulted also made a number of suggestions with regard to the municipal debt. Our municipalities owe ESCOM almost 65 billion rand. And this is the 65 billion rand that ESCOM needs to continue generating energy for our country. And they've come up with a number of proposals that we should embark on a number of campaigns so that we can get this problem solved and also encourage our people to pay. So comrades, the challenges that we are facing are challenges that we are addressing. It also has a, it has a very big impact on the economy of our country. The National Conference resolved that we now need to focus more attention on job creation. Job creation to make sure that jobs are created for young people, for the women of our country, but also not leaving out those, as I said at the rally here, who are 35 and above. Because sometimes we focus only on the very young ones and not focus on those who are 35 and above. So we have to be taking decisive action to rebuild our economy and to create jobs. I was talking to Comrade Dukwan. How here in the Free State we can capitalize on some of your endowments. And as a province, you have a number of endowments. The other time, pleasant surprise to us, we found the Free State is the reservoir of an energy source called helium. Helium is one of those energy sources that can revolutionize our economy as well. The Northern Cape has the sun, you have helium. And through the discovery of helium here in the Free State, we can have all manner of energy sources, hydrogen, helium, gas, and all that. And this is one of the areas where we can turn that into a game changer for the Free State. The Free State used to be the gold reservoir of our country. That has gone down now, and now we are finding others. Agriculture is another area where we need to focus on to make sure that we bring black people into the agriculture, into the maize production of our country. We don't have enough black people in the maize production of our country, and the Free State can play a key role. We 
We must be able to do that. And we must be able to do that by supporting our farmers. Kanagoya COVID, we were able to give support to more than 140,000 farmers by giving them vouchers. And some of them were here in the Free State. And I've said to the Minister of Agriculture and Rural Development, that is precisely what we need to be doing, to give support to our farmers so that our farmers must really advance and be able to produce food which we can also export. Coming to local government, as comrades, we are renewing the ANC. We now need to be more focused. Comrade Mac Maharaj, at our national conference as we were closing, raised a very important aspect in a very positive way as a veteran of our movement. He said, we've got many challenges. We've got lots of challenges. Some of them are immediate term, short term, medium term, and long term. And he suggested that we should choose those areas where we can make a great impact. And this is precisely what I want to say to the leadership here as well. Let us choose areas here in the Free State where we can make a great impact and be able to change the lives of our people. And if we do that, welcome and places like that in a number of places, then our people will take notice. They will say, these people are now serious. And this is precisely what we need to focus on. Yes, our municipalities are there to serve our people and not to enrich certain people. And they overprice. They overprice. So the new leadership here must place improving local government 
and addressing issues of delivery of basic services as amongst their immediate and urgent priorities. The conference, the 55th conference, directed us to take decisive action to strengthen government and to strengthen local government. That is precisely what we need to be doing. And in doing so, to be able to get rid of corruption and make sure that those who want to continue with criminal activities in our municipalities, in our government, must be dealt with very, very seriously without any mercy. And the other one, of course, is to deal with crime. We need to deal with crime because crime has become so rife in our country and we must make sure that our police serve our people and we as branches of the ANC and as members and leaders of the ANC must participate in community policing forum. And if we do that, comrades, we will be able to see change, change that our people are looking out for. So comrades, I applaud you because this is a change moment for the free state. I want you to take it as a change moment. Must demonstrate to the entire architecture of the ANC in the country. Free starter must come into its own. You are the foundation. You are where the ANC was founded. I want you to rise and shine and show all the other provinces. You are where the ANC was born and you are going to demonstrate for the ANC is alive, the ANC leads, and the ANC is revived. This is the task that you have as a free state. You must rise and shine. You must rise and show all of us for a free state if he feeds Alessa Zadure la Morao. Alessa Zahule la Morao. Causa Sebeta Moor. Luna Lili ANC Afraid You will show all of us that you have arrived. You have arrived. This conference demonstrates, yes, Senfigil. Me ANC as a free state. Live up to that. Amanda. Amanda. Forward with the free state forward. Forward with the free state forward. Amanda. That's ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking there at the closing of the conference in the free state. Welcome back. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal.
special worldwide radio broadcast, and that uh, was the address, the concluding address to uh, the African National Congress uh, Free State Provincial Elective Conference that was held over the weekend in the Republic of South Africa. The address was delivered by African National Congress President and Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. And um, right now we're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for uh, this edition of the Pan-African Journal. You leave your home for days and days And I know, I said I know You got another woman somewhere around Hey, I'm a good woman Treat me like dirt know what I'm gonna do. Welcome back, and that was the legendary uh, Bob Belen from uh, Texas. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, January 22nd, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, this uh, week uh, represented the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Amilcar Cabral, the founder of the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, the PAIGC, uh, which was formed in 1956. Cabral uh, organized the party 
was also uh, involved in building the military wing of the PAIGC, which waged an armed struggle against Portuguese colonialism uh, between 1961 and 1974. We're going to listen uh, to a seminar that was sponsored uh, by the Center for African Studies at Howard University uh, two years ago, uh, which discusses the life, legacy, and contributions of Emil Cabral. Let's listen in. I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I think we've got a full house already, which is great to see. So it's, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Krista Johnson, and I'm the director of the Center for African Studies at Howard University. And it's a pleasure to welcome you all this afternoon. Um, we have a, a special uh, a guest this afternoon, Professor Peter Mendy from uh, Rhode Island College in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm going to introduce him in a minute. He's going to be speaking on his uh, most recent book, which is titled Amilcar Cabral, A Nationalist and Pan-Africanist Revolutionary. Um, Professor Mendy is Professor of History and Africana Studies at Rhode Island College in Providence. And he was born, though, and grew up in the Gambia, but has strong roots to Guinea-Bissau and as well to Senegal. So a West African, definitely a, 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 a Pan-African or West African uh, uh, for sure. Uh, his education was in the, in the, done in the United Kingdom. So his, both his BA, his MA, and his PhD were done in the United Kingdom. His PhD um, he holds in political science and West African studies from the University of Birmingham. His doctoral thesis was Portuguese colonialism in Africa, the tradition of resistance in Guinea-Bissau, 1879 to 1959. He subsequently turns that into a book. Um, and in addition to that, of course, he has his latest, latest book on Emilcar Cabral, but has also um, published numerous publications, including co-authoring um, a volume on a historical dictionary of the Republic of Guinea-Bissau, and then has co-edited a volume uh, this is in French, Pluralism Politique en Guinea-Bissau, une transition encore, encore, <laughs> with his chapter, The Emergence of Political Pluralism in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, Dr. Mendy has lived in Guinea-Bissau for, uh, for over seven years and was uh, both director and then deputy director, well, deputy director and then director of um, the leading social science research institutes in Guinea-Bissau. Um, he witnessed, at that time, he witnessed the country's transition from a one-party state to multi-party dispensation, economic liberalization, and uh, implementation also of stringent structural adjustment programs. So he has firsthand, uh, obviously, on-the-ground experience and knowledge in uh, Guinea-Bissau. So his, his talk today will actually be, of course, on his book, but really also about the, 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 the current um, uh, uh, politics and 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 you know and societal um, uh, circumstances and conditions in in Guinea-Bissau, which will be an interesting conversation in and of itself. Um, Professor Mendy has been teaching at Rhodes uh, Rhode Island College since 2000, and his research fields are broad. They include civil military relations in contemporary Africa, the military and politics in Guinea-Bissau, democratization processes in Lusophone Africa, elections and electoral processes. And Lusophone, in, in Lusophone Africa, and war and peace transitions in Lusophone Africa. So we're really delighted to have uh, uh, Professor Mendy come and, and speak with us here at the center. This was actually a talk that was scheduled for last spring, but because and it was supposed to be in person, but because 
of COVID, we, we've had to now do it in this virtual format. So I'm going to um, first hand over the, the floor to Professor Mindy and, and give him an opportunity to, to speak for about 30 minutes. We also, then I will come back and introduce our um, discussant for the, for the afternoon, who is our master. Mr. Rene Odanga. So I, I, will, I will introduce him in, in a little bit. But let me please uh, turn it over to Professor Mende to, to give his, his talk now. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Johnson, uh, for that warm introduction and for kindly renewing the invitation by former director, Professor Mbai Cham, who invited me early this year to make an in-person presentation, as you just mentioned, but uh, COVID-19 decided to be a malicious spoiler. Um, I just want to acknowledge the family of Amilcar Cabral. I know some of them um, uh, have joined or said will be joining. And to the distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen, um, I send my uh, warmest greetings and thank you for joining this virtual uh, presentation. I would also like to thank uh, the discussant in advance, irrespective of his uh, perspectives. I am honored to remotely present uh, my book, uh, Amilcar Cabral, A Nationalist and Pan-Africanist Revolutionary. But I would like to start uh, with a quick PowerPoint presentation to provide a visual overview. Now, I'm going to try and see if I can upload it from here. Uh, oh, and we can. Uh, so I don't know how it's showing on your end. Is it... Um, is it working at your end? No, it is not no. yet. Oh. Did you hit the share screen button? Okay, let me try again then. I did. Uh, I thought I did. So once you hit the share screen button, okay. uh, you need to select which item to share. Oh. See, then you have to double click on that item. Let me just try it again. How there we go. Okay. Yeah, that's now we can see it. Okay. So let's get this PowerPoint going. Um, okay. So that's just the title. So I'll, this is the uh, historical figure that the book is about. Amilcar Cabral was born in, in Guinea-Bissau in the interior, the eastern part of the country, in a town called Bafata in Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau, as you can see from the map, is waged between Senegal to the north and the Republic of Guinea to the east and to the south, and the Atlantic Ocean um, to the west. It is uh, a country with an archipelago of 88 islands uh, here. And this was actually the house where Cabral was born on uh, 24th uh, September, on 12th September, I'm sorry, 12th September, 1924. Um, his parents, uh, Cape Verde, were Cape Verdeans. 
The father was juvenile Antonio Lopez the 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 Costa Cabral, and the mother was Eva Pinal Eva Evera. Uh, these are images uh, of them and the young Amilcar Cabral. Um, Cabral uh, was born, the, the parents came from uh, the Cape Verde Islands. Uh, the Cape Verde Islands, uh, 10 islands, an archipelago of 10 islands off the coast of Senegal, about 400 miles from Senegal and 900 miles northwest from Bissau. This is the house uh, that the father built and Amelga Cabral spent a brief time here when he left Guinea-Bissau at age eight with his father to uh, Cape Verde. Okay, um, let me stop there and I might have to come back. Well, well, let me just continue because what I was planning. So, um, Amilcar Cabral was very much uh, inspired by the tradition of resistance in both these two settings. His land of birth, Portuguese Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, but also his land of ancestry, Cape Verde. And he famously articulated this by saying the resistance of the people of Guinea-Bissau, the people of Guinea and Cabo Verde has never ceased to manifest itself in revolt, passive resistance, mass emigration to neighboring countries, and total refusal to pay the taxes of domination. Our struggle is carrying on from there. Um, Amilcar Cabral was uh, understood the nature of colonial education, which he expressed as, he said, all, all Portuguese uh, education disparages the African, his culture, and his civilization. African languages are forbidden in schools. The white man is always presented as a superior being and the African as an inferior. The colonial conquistadors are shown as saints and heroes. As soon as African children enter elementary school, they develop an inferiority complex. So that um, function of colonial education was uh, under understood by Cabral. And um, the Cabral was also made uh, uh, a distinction uh, and clearly identified the uh, enemy in this struggle for liberation. He famously said, said, our people make a distinction between the fascist colonial uh, government and the people of Portugal. They are not fighting against the Portuguese people. And um, Amilcar Cabral uh, was, very, uh, was a very energetic, multitasking um, uh, uh, individual. He actually uh, conducted the war, war. He was out in the front, as well as um, traveling the world, um, mobilizing, you know, uh, world opinion, uh, securing uh, 
both political, material, and diplomatic support. Here we see uh, images of him in the field with his soldiers. Cabral was very much uh, involved in uh, and concerned about the situation of women. Women took an active part in the liberation struggle. They were not just uh, carriers of you know weapons. They did that too, but uh, much more important, they were frontline soldiers as well. So here you see uh, a picture with, of him with some uh, women fighters. Um, Cabral conducted the war with incredible honesty. He said, hide nothing from the masses of our people. He tells his fighters and his comrades, tell no lies, expose lies wherever they are told, mask no difficulties, mistakes, failures, claim no easy um, uh, victories. And he demonstrated solidarity uh, with what he called every just cause. He said, we in the conference of the nationalist organizations of the Portuguese uh, colonies, which he was the face and the voice of this united front against Portuguese colonialism, he said, we are fiercely in solidarity with every just cause. Uh, in the case of the civil rights movement here, he said, we are with the blacks of North America. We are with them in the streets of Los Angeles. And when they are deprived of all possibility of life, we suffer with them. Um, Amilcar Cabral linked the struggle uh, against Portuguese colonialism um, with the, uh, the struggle of the people of Portugal to end um, their subjugation to the dictatorship. He said, while the fall of fascism in Portugal might not lead to the end of Portuguese colonialism, we are certain that the elimination of Portuguese colonialism will bring about the destruction of Portuguese fascism. Um, through our liberation struggle, we are making an effective contribution towards the defeat of Portuguese fascism and giving the Portuguese people the best possible proof of our solidarity. Very prophetic because the war in Guinea-Bissau the war in the colonies um, would actually end up liberating the Portuguese people, perhaps unprecedented in history, where uh, a people fighting against the colonial oppressors would end up uh, freeing uh, the people of the uh, in the in the metropolis in the in in the colonizing country particularly if that colonizing country, country is a dictatorship. So um, Cabral was able to, the war in Guinea-Bissau uh, actually got to a point where the, the soldiers themselves were fatigued. Some of them began to sympathize with the, um, 
with the course of the liberation war. And uh, what became the armed forces movement that ended the 48 years of dictatorship in Portugal actually started in, uh, in Guinea-Bissau. It was in Guinea-Bissau that soldiers um, got together and uh, decided to uh, end the war. When they returned to Portugal, they were the ones who organized the, the, what, was, what is called the, the, the revolution uh, in, uh, in, um, in Portugal that ended the war. But here we get a statement um, by the armed forces movement that says, we Portuguese military troops who were sent to a war we did not understand or support have in our hands a unique opportunity to repair the crimes of fascism and colonialism, to set up the basis for a new fraternal cooperation between the peoples of Portugal and Guinea. Um, so, the war, uh, Guinea-Bissau was critical. The war in Guinea-Bissau actually was more intensive, and it was in Guinea-Bissau that Portugal was decisively uh, defeated. So, um, it ended with, with Guinea-Bissau declaring unilateral uh, unilaterally declaring independence on 24th September 1973, followed by Mozambique on 25th uh, June 1975, in Cape Verde on 5th July 1975, and Santome and Principe 12 July 1975, finally in Angola in, on 11th November 1975. Okay, so um, let me stop there. And um, just wanted to say, uh, I'll continue with the presentation. So um, a lot has been written about America Cabral. So obviously uh, my book on Cabral is not the first publication on this great historical figure. Since the landmark publication of Basil Davidson's book, The Liberation of Guinea, Aspects of an African Revolution in 1969, publications in English about Cabral's ideas, accomplishments, and legacy have grown substantially. Some of the critically acclaimed studies in English include Amilcar Cabral, Revolutionary Leadership and People's War by Patrick Chabal in 1983. Amilcar Cabral's Revolutionary Theory and Practice, A Critical Guide in 1991. And Ronald Chilcott's, uh, but that was by Ronald Chilcott, excuse me. And Warriors at, wo at, walk, at Work, How Guinea Was Really Set Free by Mustafa Dada in 1993. Now, my book is a contribution to the Ohio University series on African leaders of the 20th century. The series aims to introduce college students and general readers to the great African leaders of the last century. Leaders who demonstrated exemplary leadership qualities 
in liberate, liberating and governing their peoples, leaders whose ideas still resonate um, in the continent today. Now, the biographies, uh, the biographies in the series are meant to be concise, readable, and accessible. They are not revised doctoral theses. Focus on leadership is apt and timely, given the, uh, the um, persistent crisis of leadership in post-independence uh, Africa, a chronic crisis that has devastated and continues to destroy lives and livelihoods in too many African countries. Defining, um, defining the meaning of leader, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, famously stated, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. By this definition, the biographic profile sketched out in the pages of my book um, amply qualifies Cabral as an inspirational and motivational leader. Charismatic and visionary, Cabral was a genius at mobilizing and inspiring his fellow compatriots to engage in selfless, high-risk, and life-threatening activities. Cabral was not only a great African leader of the last century, but according to 5,000 readers of the BBC World Histories magazine that came out in February 2020 this year, he is the second greatest, he's considered the second greatest leader of all time. This is after um, Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the 19th century ruler of this Sikh empire. Cabral was voted second from a list of 20 leaders in world history nominated by historians. Professor Hakim Adi of Chichester University in the UK who nominated him. Uh, leaders including Egyptian Pharaoh Amenhotep III, Roman Catholic Pope Innocent III, African Emperor Mansa Musa of the Mali Empire, European monarchs including Catherine the Great of Russia and Queen Elizabeth I of England, US President Abraham Lincoln, and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. One of the most important criteria stipulated for great leader was, quote, someone who exercised power and had a positive impact on humanity. While, um, while 5,000, I'm sorry, while, while the 5,000 BBC uh, magazine readers are not a globally representative sample, the survey result still reflects the significance of Amilcar Cabral as a leader on the world stage. Cabral was an agronomist, a nationalist, a pan-Africanist, and an outspoken internationalist in solidarity with every just cause, as he put it. A prolific writer, his scientific publications including, included, include voluminous studies on agronomy and agriculture, while his political works, mainly in Portuguese, also comprise several English language publications, including Revolution in Guinea 
and African people's struggle and unity and struggle. A Marxist revolutionary theorist, uh, uh, theorist Cabral critiqued the concept of class and insisted on, quote, the existence of history before the class struggle to challenge and reject the notion that the colonized are, quote, people without history. An engaged intellectual and revolutionary, Cabral remains a, as significant as his famous contemporaries on the world stage, including Mao Zedong, uh, Franz Fanon, Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, Fidel Castro, and Che Guevara, to whom he has been, in my opinion, simplistically likened and even referred to as the Che Guevara of Africa. Now, while Cabral and Guevara were close ideological uh, comrades, they had different perspectives on revolutionary principles and practices. Fundamentally, Cabral did not believe in the export of revolution, a position he articulated clearly at the 1966 tricontinental tri meeting of fellow revolutionaries in Havana, Cuba, when he declared, I quote, however great the similarity between our cases and how, however identical our enemies, national liberation and social revolution are not exportable commodities. Cabral insisted on contextual specificity. Briefly, this, uh, the biography, this biography of Cabral narrates the life of a man born in a Portuguese colonial outpost called Guinea Portuguesa or Portuguese Guinea 96 years ago who would become the most prominent founding father of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. The book also tells the story of Cabral's active engagement in the anti-colonial struggles against Portugal that secured independence for Angola, Mozambique, and San Tome and Principe. The accumulative impacts of the transformative developments generated by Cabral's effective leadership contributed significantly to the collapse of 48 years of brutal fascist dictatorship in Portugal called the Estado Novo. The narrative provides critical um, perspective on Cabral's accomplishments and the multiple con uh, contexts in which he lived and the struggles to overcome the enormous um, challenges he faced. In narrating the story of Cabral, I have tried to contextualize the major developments in his life. Chapters one and two examine the two critical settings in which Amilcar Cabral was born and raised. First, the background of ongoing wars of conquest in Portuguese Guinea, where he was born on 12 September 1924 in the town of Bafata. While the Portuguese presence in the territory dates back to the 15th century, effective colonial domination was only achieved in the early years of the 20th century. Nine years before Cabral was born, Portugal finally conquered the mainland of the territory in 1915, but still had another 21 years to subjugate the inhabitants of the adjacent 
88 island Bijagos Archipelago. That was 12 years after Cabral was born. Secondly, the uh, post-slavery colonial situation in Cabo Verde. In Cape Verde, the 10 island archipelago settled by the Portuguese in the mid 15th century, where they established the first slave plantation society in the tropics, which became the model for the Americas. Slavery was finally abolished in Cape Verde in 1878. Uh, I did something here, I shouldn't do. And um, power, uh, uh, poor in natural resources and plagued by centuries, by, uh, by centuries of periodic droughts, famines, and spectacular deaths, uh, exploitation, and callous neglect by Portugal, the incredibly re resilient people of the archipelago of Cape Verde resist, resisted the best way they could with revolts, rebellions, and migrations, which created the large Cape Verdean uh, diaspora in Africa, Europe, and the Americas. With the highest literacy rate in Portugal's African empire, 22%, for example, in 1950, compared to 3% in Angola, 2% in, uh, in Mozambique, and 1% in um, Portuguese Guinea. With a seminary built in 1866 and a high and a high school with large Cape Verdean faculty, but limited employment opportunities, the Portuguese recruited a significant number of educated Cape Verdeans into the colonial service of Guinea-Bissau, and to a limited extent in Angola. So it was in search of uh, better employment opportunities that both parents of Amilcar Cabral found themselves in Portuguese Guinea in the early um, years of the 20th century. I discussed Cabral's primary and secondary education in Cape Verde, and as an active high school student, his involvement with a literacy movement called Claridad that um, influenced him to write poems and prose in which he critically commented on the harsh environmental and colonial reality. So um, the chapters that follow um, chronologically uh, looks at Cabral's uh, development from um, uh, university in, uh, in, uh, in Portugal where he arrived in 1945, uh, his involvement in the uh, in uh, clandestine clandestine uh, political activity, student political activity, but also uh, with other African students, including Agostinho Neto of um, of Angola, Marcelino de Santos, who died recently of Mozambique. Um, Cabral would uh, become very uh, engaged in political activities. I, I, I delve into his deepening political consciousness and radicalization. And um, in the third chapter, I look at Cabral's return to his country of birth 20 years later in um, Portuguese Guinea. And 
his uh, uh, work as an agronomist. Uh, he studied agronomy in Portugal, but also um, his uh, clandestine uh, work to try to raise political consciousness in Guinea-Bissau by organizing a sport and re, uh, uh, recreation uh, club for young uh, people. So um, the Portuguese would uh, discover his uh, activities and uh, when he is medically evacuated in, uh, to Portugal because he had a heavy dose of malaria, he is actually, his uh, uh, employment is terminated so he does not return. Uh, in chapter five, I, I look at his decision to engage fully in armed liberation struggle. In chapter six, I discuss the launch uh, war of independence in January 1963. In chapter seven, I highlight his active engagement in Pan-African politics and his unfailing demonstration of solidarity with what he calls every just cause in the world from the Vietnam conflict to the Congo crisis to the civil rights uh, struggles here in the United States. In chapter eight, I discuss the circumstances surrounding his assassination by one of his disgruntled fighters uh, with the deep complicity of the Portuguese. Chapter nine, I discovered, I analyzed the redoubled efforts of the Portuguese in the wake of the loss of their uh, uh, of its charismatic uh, leader to complete the liberation of Portuguese Guinea, and in chapter nine, I look at uh, in the final chapter, I um, look at the legacy of Cabral uh, as the most prominent founding father of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. His ideas about national liberation beyond flag independence remain pertinent in contemporary Africa. So I think I, um, my time is, uh, I will stop there. Um, and we can pick it up uh, uh, later. Thank you, thank you. That's a good, uh, I guess, pause uh, um, point for the time being. Thank you very much, Professor Mendy. So um, we're interested actually in delving a little bit more into the the, the substance and meat of um, of your book, and then of course bringing it up into a bit of a the contemporary significance really of, of Cabral and and understanding I think some of the the contemporary political conditions uh, in Guinea-Bissau. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted, though, to, I guess, facilitate some of that and to, to get us uh, going there to introduce um, our discussant for today, who is Rene Odanga. He will serve as our discussant, and he's a master's student in the Department of African Studies here at Howard University, a second-year master's student, so he's finishing up, hopefully, soon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, his research focuses on East African state history and thematic cultural expressions in African literature. He's received his B.A. in International Relations from the United States International University, um, hails from East Africa, but again, has a lot of interest in Amilcar Cabral, and um, as, of course, do, you know, most of us. Um, so I'll turn it over to you, Renee, if you can um, perhaps give us your impressions of the, of the book and really what stood out for you, and then also um, 
uh, facilitate some uh, some of the Q&A. And then I'll also, just a reminder to, I'll come back on probably, but just a reminder to the audience, it's best to probably put your questions and answers in the chat. Uh, we're using the chat uh, function for that. If you do have a question that you want to ask, if you can just flag us and then I can come on and actually ask you to then unmute your mic. Thanks, Renee. Over to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. Uh, Dr. Mendy, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's very nice to meet you, and I'm very grateful for the work that you put into the book. Now, I have 10 questions, but I'll only ask three, uh, if only for the, for, the, for the purpose of time. Um, it is 10 questions for, for every chapter in the book, but I'll only ask three of them. Um, and I'll, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll delineate them along the, the, the duties that you wanted to prove with the book. That one, uh, Amilka Cabral competently organized and led one of Africa's most consequential and uh, most consequential armed liberation struggles. And so on that, and with the fourth one, that he wrote incisive essays and innovative books that still resonate today. I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that from the very beginning, I think it is in Chapter 2, that uh, Guinea-Bissau, which was then called Portuguese Guinea, had multiple ethnic groups and people who have more in common than the sum, sum total of their differences, the, 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 the large swathing of, um, of ethnic communities in, in, in Guinea-Bissau. They have more in common than the sum total of their differences. Yet the Portuguese imperialists were still able to um, amass these differences and use them to split them, such that we see even later on during the struggle, Amilcar Cabral is still, is still finding challenges uh, surpassing this engineered, um, these engineered um, differences that the Portuguese had been able to play off each community against each other. Now, uh, why was this possible to begin with? And two, uh, if, if you could also speak about that, with the, with the differences that were cultivated between Cabo Verdeans and, and people in Guinea-Bissau, and if you could make it com contemporary as well, because as a student of African studies, I would say Africans have qualitatively less uh, differences than, our, than, than we have in common. We have more in common um, quantitatively than whatever sum total of our differences. Yet this still seems to be a problem that we, we, we face in trying to amass Pan-Africanist struggle or a united front against underdevelopment and so on. So if you could, uh, uh, how can we, how can Pan-Africanists endeavor to um, uh, rise above this? Yes, okay. Um, uh, regarding the... Uh, your first question um, has to do with the policy of assimilation, which the Portuguese uh, use as a tactic of divide and rule. Uh, the policy of assimilation was applied to Guinea-Bissau, or Portuguese Guinea, Angola, and Mozambique, and Kivod was exempted. Um, that... Uh, was a, a very effective uh, instrument of divide and rule. Uh, um, so the Cavedians, because again of manpower shortage, Portugal is trying to uh, prevail over 
huge territories in Africa. Angola is uh, 14 times the size of Portugal, uh, and not to speak of uh, Mozambique. All right. So uh, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, uh, it does not have the manpower. So it uses Cape Verdeans uh, in Guinea-Bissau, and to do that effectively, uh, this policy of divide and rule uh, 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 is uh, is deployed. And so um, it exaggerates the differences. It gives us the, the, the Cape Verdeans. But we have to be careful. Even though Cape Verdeans were considered civilized and assimilated, okay, um, there are two types of Cape Verdeans that we find in Guinea-Bissau. There are the poor Cape Verdeans who have very strong connection with the people, uh, and then there are the, uh, the educated Cape Verdeans recruited uh, by the Portuguese in the colonial uh, service uh, who have to implement the colonial policies uh, of, uh, of the Portuguese. Um, the, the statistics are, uh, are, are very uh, clear. Um, at one point, you have over 60% of the colonial officials in, in, um, in Guinea-Bissau are, are Cape Verdeans. And, and that, that's problematic because Portuguese colonialism, uh, like all colonialism, was very harsh. But because Portugal was a dictatorship from 1926, um, it was already hard on the people of Portugal, the regime in Portugal was harsh on the people of Portugal, we cannot expect it to be any less so in the colonies. And the people that are implementing those harsh uh, uh, measures in the colonies are mainly Cape Verdeans. So uh, the Cape Verdean colonial uh, officials, because they are the ones in closest contact with the ordinary people. They are the ones that enforce, that collect taxes, that enforced, you know, um, uh, forced labor and all the has, harsh measures. So, yes, it, it, it brings this, uh, uh, it exact, actually exaggerates the, uh, the antagonism between uh, Guineans and Cape Verdeans. And that will remain even after independence. Um, I'm sorry, um, um, I forgot the other point that you made, which was? Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted you now to um, contemporize that and bring it over, uh, to extrapolate it to all of Africa today where that might still seem to be the case. Well, actually, that, that, um, that antagonism um, would, be, would be reflected in the liberation movement. You have this liberation movement, the African Party of Independence, uh, for Guinea, of Guinea and Cape Verde, all right. it is uh, uh, created uh, by Amilcar Cabral with uh, Guinean and Cape Verdean uh, nationalists. So it is a binational uh, liberation movement dedicated to liberating both countries. Okay, because again, Amilcar Cabral has this binationalism born in Guinea-Bissau of Cape Verdean uh, parents. Now, um, that 
uh, that reality of this binationalism um, uh, becomes a problem in uh, during the war of liberation. Right? Uh, we see uh, you have a situation where the leadership of the PAIGC is Kverdian because Kverd was the main beneficiary of the little colonial education that was provided. So um, the uh, the, main, the the leaders of the PIG, the educated leaders of the PIGC, including Amilcar Cabral, was of Kverdian origins, and so. Um, at the same time, you have that antagonism because this this is happening during the colonial period. You know, you have the uh, Kverdians who are playing this very important role in maintaining the colonial status quo. And you have this nationalist organization that is led by Kverdians. And, and, and uh, the frictions uh, are there. And so uh, the Portuguese are able to uh, exploit that, and that would lead to the assassination of Amilcar Cabral. And again, after independence, um, it's that difference plays out to the 1980 coup d'état in which Amilcar Cabral's brother is overthrown, and that would lead to the separation, the whole struggle was predicated on the unification of these two countries and they would separate with the 1980 coup. Okay, a little bit further. I think mm-hmm. this will be my, my, my last question. Mm-hmm. No, it won't be quite. Um, the concept of class delineation that you speak about, I think it's in chapter five. The concept of what? Class delineation, class, class struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, while other African intellectuals and leaders, political leaders, liberation leaders like Sekuture, Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, had avoided in their, in, in their theorizations of African struggles the concept of class being a foundational um, unit of organization. They argued more around uh, ethnic lines, religion, um, age even. Uh, Amerika Cabral doesn't shy away from this. He says, yes, African societies have been um, Class uh, have been stratified along class lines. Right. Then he says, in order for the for, for the for the liberation struggle to move, the middle class, the petite bourgeoisie, needs to commit class suicide. Mm-hmm. Could you please speak a bit more about that? Sure. And um, that is uh, part that partly explains the failure of this project. You know. Committing class suicide means um, identifying with the cause, with the with the with, with the cause of the liberation, with the with the the victims, you know, of 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 uh, uh, of colonization itself. And so, um, yes, Cabral does not shy from Marx's analysis uh, of the situation, and so. Um, uh, we find um, he refers to class, uh, even though he, he does um, uh, question some aspects, as I mentioned earlier, of, uh, of, uh, of Marxism itself. 
of class struggle. Or, uh, but certainly um, in Guinea-Bissau, um, Cabral uh, uh, does emphasize that, um, that aspect of, of, of Marxism. Okay, thank you. I think we're going to move on to the uh, Q&A session uh -huh. of the presentation. Okay. Um, am I going to do it or is Dr. Johnson going to do it? Sorry, Renee, I'm going to let you do this. Okay. okay. <laughs> do you, are you able to see the questions coming yes, in? Yes, I'm able to see them. I'm able okay. to see them. Um, there is someone who had asked from, uh, the importance of um, um, departing from the need to uh, compare Cabral to other leaders, for example, Manza Musa or Che Guevara or Kwame Nkrumah. It would it be better to understand him if we just saw him as Amilka Cabral without comparing him to anybody else? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I, I think that's a useful um, uh, uh, thing to do. Um, he was... Uh, he was unique, but uh, invariably people tend to compare um, leaders uh, in order to bring out the uniqueness uh, about them. Um, I think it is in that sense that I, for example, uh, mentioned the difference between him and Che Guevara, for example. Um, also, um, someone was asking, it is very interesting how Cabral is viewed because the revolution was not only an intellectual one, as you mentioned, sure. but a political one as well. And, a uh, and, and, and an armed one. Do you believe that it is a fact that it was so multidimensional that made it a bit more successful? Yes, I think uh, particularly the emphasis on culture. Um, yes, uh, because it was multidimensional. It was not flag uh, independence. Um, yes, that is uh, what makes it um, um, that much more uh, important, a revolution. Um, there, was, there was a question as well about Amilcar's um, intellectual uh, corpus, uh, slants, mm -hmm. and their relationship to negritude, the movement of negritude. You had mentioned in the book about his uh, dalliances with the presence of Hekan, Aliun Diop, and the likes. Please speak a bit more about that as well. I've had the pleasure to read the book. Everybody else hasn't. Yes, I think he uh, he saw the limitation of um, you know cultural uh, nationalism, and um, so he was more interested in total liberation. Um, so yes, he embraced uh, some aspects of you know, negritude. Uh, he was definitely a Pan-Africanist, but qualified his Pan-Africanism. It's the Pan-Africanism from bottom up rather than top down. It's, uh, it's about solidarity of the peoples um, rather than, uh, you know, uh, a club of uh, the elite or solidarity amongst the elite. Okay, I, I have to ask this question from Dr. Plummer. Uh, would you please share your perspectives on Cabral's approach to cultural resistance and culture as a tool for resistance? Because you can't help but think of Cabral's understanding of the power of culture as a mobilizing tool, that that is a feature that we have seen in contemporary politics. 
And if I would just to add an addendum to that, you mentioned somewhere that he, he spoke about the literature and poetry of the age being resigned either to hopefulness or to pessimism, and that he saw that that would only lead to stagnation. So could you speak about culture and its optimism or pessimism and how it can be harnessed uh, in contemporary politics globally? Yeah, Cabral puts a lot of importance to culture, especially in a situation where you have the dominant colonial culture. So culture itself uh, is a weapon of liberation, you know, but uh, he makes a distinction between culture that actually oppresses the people and culture that is liberating. Culture is useful in the fight against foreign domination. Um, so uh, in that sense, uh, culture plays a very important role for Cabral. Okay. Uh-huh. How would you assess the overall success or failure of the revolution in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde? Um, the revolution um, died with Cabral. Um, after Cabral, it was, it became Again, the context here is very important. You know, Cabral is assassinated in 1973. Uh, nine months later, the country becomes independent. Now, um, it is at a time when there's also uh, economic crisis with the, um, you know, uh, the, the oil embargo that plunges the world you know, into a recession. And so when you take the whole, uh, when you look at the whole picture, um, it's it's a difficult time for a newborn nation. Now, again, um, questions the commitment of the leadership, the people that took over uh, from Amilcar Cabral. Amilcar Cabral was really this towering uh, figure that was clear about the objectives of the revolution. And with his death, um, the, uh, his uh, followers, they are almost in disarray. You know, they uh, hurriedly gather together. Um, independence is declared. Uh, a new nation is uh, uh, comes into being, but it is struggling. And um, again, the ideological rivalry between East and West, the Cold War, uh, impacts um, the situation uh, in Guinea-Bissau as well as in other African countries. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, Guinea-Bissau was a country as it, when it was fighting for its independence, uh, the Soviet Union played a very important part. The Eastern Bloc countries played a very important part. And so uh, with the end of the Cold War, uh, with the triumphalism uh, uh, that emerged with the West, particularly the United States, and the conditionalism that uh, attached Guinea-Bissau it impacts the leaders of, uh, uh, of Guinea-Bissau as well as other uh, countries. But in the case of uh, uh, Guinea-Bissau, it, it, it is serious. And the, you find 
Cabral, the agenda is, is abandoned. Um, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, they come out with uh, economic and political conditionalities, you know, to access, you know, development funds, and it has an impact. Okay, uh, Professor Lang Langria uh, has a question for you. Uh, I don't know if she... Professor Lagmir? Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion uh, sponsored by Howard University Center for African Studies uh, in 2020 uh, on a biography about uh, Milcar Cabral, the founder of the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde. The PAIGC, uh, this uh, week represents the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Emilcar Cabral at the hands of uh, Portuguese intelligence agents. Of course, um, this has been the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, January 22nd, uh, 2023. We have been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African a radio network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go uh, to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the legendary Hank Mobley, and uh, this is from uh, a 1956 recording entitled Mobley's Message. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank <laughs> you.